Father, we thank you that you speak to us here and now today through the words of Scripture. Help us to hear your voice. Show us Christ, we pray. Amen. Let me begin with a little story about fear. Um, I have a sister who's five years younger than me. Uh, and when she was 15, she was allowed to come down on the train to London, while I, where I was at university, to visit me. Uh, we had a great weekend together. Um, the end of the trip came. I, I took her back to, uh, to Euston Station to get the train home. Uh, I was on the platform. She was on the train. I passed her her camera, and it fell down between the platform and the train. Uh, she cried. I panicked. I promised I'd get it back for her. We said goodbye. The train pulled away. I looked around. There's no one there. So I jumped down on the track and got the camera. Now, there are some things that are just drummed into you as a child. Do not get in a car with a stranger. Do not put something in the shop in your pocket without telling your parents. Do not jump onto train tracks. Now, I knew I shouldn't run because that would draw attention to myself. So I walked as quickly as I could out of that station and went home. And I lived in fear. I lived in fear for the next few weeks, the next few months, that I get a letter through the door, a phone call, a visit from the police, a fine, that I'd be found out. Uh, nothing came of it, turns out, somewhat unsurprisingly, looking back, that the police had um, better things to do. And eventually the fear faded away. But for that season of my life, however irrationally, I lived in fear. And I think that's something of the emotion that we see, particularly at the beginning and at the end of Ecclesiastes 9, as Daniel has just read so well for us. Um, we're jumping ahead a little bit in our series today. Uh, and in chapter 9, this teacher's beginning to move towards a conclusion. Uh, it's a bit like the, um, the montage uh, towards the end of a film, uh, the teacher reflecting back on all that he has seen as he has examined life under the sun. And it makes, as we've come to expect in Ecclesiastes, uh, for grim reading. Um, we'll spend the first two-thirds of our time this morning in Ecclesiastes 9. Um, but as the existential cries of this teacher reach fever pitch, we'll look ahead a little bit more than we have before. And we'll spend about the last third of our time in the glorious good news of Jesus Christ, seeing how that answers the longings and the cries that this book expresses that we all feel. So first, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 to 6, the teacher urges us to look death in the face. It's been at work behind the scenes the whole way through the book. It's been in the air, in the atmosphere, turning down the dimmer switch on each light bulb moment of hope or wisdom or possibility. And the teacher faces it head on in the first six verses of, these, of this chapter and I think urges us to do the same. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. I hope we'll start with just one on it, on it, uh, verse one on its own. We'd assume we're heading in a positive direction. But then he carries on. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. And then suddenly the truth that we're in God's hands doesn't seem quite so reassuring. If it doesn't mean that harm won't come our way as believers, it doesn't mean that we will even know what we will face in the future as believers. And it gets worse in verse 2. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, 
the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. There isn't a protected category here on this earth, a certain group of humans who get immunity, who get an easy escape. All of us are on the same path, the same one-way road here under the sun. A common destiny, verse 2. The same destiny, verse 3, is death. He shows us in verse 5 and 6. All of us will in the end die. And he gives us a very bleak picture. In verses 5 and 6, of what that will mean. Our every love, hate, jealousy, wiped away leaving nothing more than a pile of dust and a few fading memories in its wake. The teacher looks death in the face, and it is grim indeed. And it's hard for us to hear. It has been over the last few weeks. The number among us have already looked death in the face. We've lost loved ones, unborn children. We've faced the prospect of our own death as we've struggled with ill health. We've known death as a daily companion. We're looking at it in the face in this very season of life. Many of us, we probably haven't had such a close encounter with death. And we choose not to think about it. In fact, our culture conditions us not to think about it, to avoid it as a topic of conversation or consideration. Like the, uh, the opposite of the Victorians, who famously were a, Obsessed with death, always talking about death and, and never, mentioning sex, uh, never mentioning sex. Our culture is the other way around. But we know, deep down, that we can't escape it. We can't avoid it entirely. It appears out of nowhere. It hits us in the face so often when we least expect it. Our best friend's mum gets a cancer diagnosis. A family member has to go in for an emergency operation. We hear that a former colleague, neighbour, friend has taken their own life. And death hits us in the face. But don't dodge it, says the teacher. Take the time to look at it. Better to examine it now and know what lies ahead before the time comes when you can't do anything but look death in the face. But then he takes a different turn in verse 7. Let's read again that whole section from verses 7 to 10. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning, nor, uh, nor knowledge nor wisdom. That's quite a gear change that comes here, particularly in verses 7 and 8 and into verse 9, uh, where we're hit with a string of imperatives, having not had a single command so far in the chapter. Uh, go, eat, drink, be clothed, anoint, enjoy, do. It's, it's abrupt, it's almost overwhelming, this spray of things we're to do. And it takes us back, we may remember, to earlier in the book, to chapter 2, verse 24, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It crops up again in 5, 18 to 20, and in 8, verse 15. But, but this time, these commands, if anything, stronger. 
new elements are introduced. We've not just got eating, we've got, uh, we've got drinking wine here, dressing, anointing your head with oil. Marriage comes up here. And there's such emphasis in the way the teacher puts it. Do with all your might, whatever your hand finds to do. So what's going on? Is it a Mickey take? Has our teacher finally snapped and turned cynical? Dance with the fairies, run away to the forest, sing songs, chant charms, go for it. I don't think so. I don't think he's being cynical. I don't think he's clutching at straws either. Because as we've seen in previous passages, he brings God into the picture at this point in the chapter as he gives us these instructions. And he shows us as he has done before, something of who God is. God is the giver. Verse 9. God has given you this life under the sun. And God is the judge. More in a moment by moment, rather than an ultimate sense here. But verse 7. God has already approved what you do. He's accepted it. He's rubber-stamped this kind of a life. A life of eating, drinking, wearing, anointing, enjoying, doing. Wondering what God's will for your life is? Well, one answer is here. Work hard. Love your family. Put on a clean set of clothes each day. Eat well. Do those things. For God has already approved of them, the teacher tells us. So I think this is genuine. Not cynical, not clutching at straws. But the teacher's telling us to choose to live a simple life with the lot that God has given you. That's our second point. Choose to live a simple life with the lot that God has given you. From verses 7 to 10. And there's a beautiful humility here, is there not? A beautiful humility in not reaching for the stars, grasping for the new, the biggest, the best, not always looking to the next thing, not chasing the wind, not thinking life will be better when I'm somewhere else, doing something else with someone else. It's a beautiful humility to living life in the here and now, this life, this lot that God has given you. Accepting that maybe you'll never get the job you long for, the dream home, the ideal family, the perfect holiday. Maybe you'll always find your flatmates frustrating, marriage difficult, your children hard work, mother-in-law difficult. There's a beautiful humility here. And trusting God to hold the reins, not trying to wrestle them out of his hands so that you're still in control, but accepting the life that he has given you. But this isn't just a case of grin and bear it, take one for the team, develop a bit of stoicism, keep calm and carry on. Even just that phrase, accepting your lot, it has such negative connotations in a society where we're told to always strive and reach for more. This is positive. This is God's gift to you. And we know that we have a generous God. Scripture tells us again and again and again, we have a God who lavishes good things on his people. We have a God who loves to bless us and pour out his grace upon us. These gifts are good. They're to be enjoyed. Not, not just settled for, because they're the best that life is going to get. Gift, not gain. 
Here comes our new motto to life. One writer on these verses says, for there's one way and one right way only to respond to God's gifts, and that's to enjoy them. And God will take pleasure as we enjoy them, like a parent enjoying watching their child caught up in imaginative play with their new set of cheap clothes. God will take pleasure as we enjoy his good gifts, however big or small they may be. So hunt out the best falafel, the most circular burger, the most full-bodied wine that you can find in the city and enjoy it. If you're married, enjoy life with your wife. If you're too busy to enjoy life together as a couple, you might just be too busy. Do a good job of your work and enjoy doing it well. Feel the satisfaction of a job well done. Have a shower, do your hair, trim your beard. Put on a fresh set of clothes each day. Feel good about the day that lies ahead. Don't sit around in your pyjamas all day because death is coming. So what's the point? Let the nearness of death be the reason you live. And this list here isn't intended to be uh, exhaustive, but more representative. Uh, Here's one writer's expansion of it. Uh, Ride a bike, see the Grand Canyon, go to the theatre, learn to make music, visit the sick, care for the dying, cook a meal, feed the hungry, watch a film, read a book, laugh with some friends until it makes you cry, play football, run a marathon, snorkel in the ocean, listen to Mozart, ring your parents, write a letter, play with your kids, spend your money, learn a language, plant a church, start a school, speak about Christ, travel to somewhere you've never been, adopt a child, give away your fortune and then some, shape someone else's life by laying down your own gift. We could go on for many hours. God has given us this life as a gift. So go enjoy it. The teacher says, enjoy it while you can. And so often, I think as Christians, we can feel a bit guilty about enjoying the good things of life. It's only a a small step we know from from a glass or two of wine to the whole bottle. Or are we slipping into gluttony as we enjoy a slightly too large slice of cake? Netflix of an evening, I probably ought to be out serving at the church or reading my Bible or doing something more worthwhile. Laughing, a stand-up comic, no, I shouldn't be amused by what makes the world smile. I've got friends from church coming around. Quick, get, get you-know-what off the stereo and get the Chris Tomlin playlist on. And don't get me wrong, we should set our mind on the things of Christ, Scripture tells us to. We should think about whatever is true, noble, right, and lovely. We should be wary of the sins of greed, gluttony, laziness, drunkenness. And we shouldn't love the world. We shouldn't take comfort in earthly things. But we should enjoy our earthly things. If we can enjoy them as gifts from God the giver, rather than worshipping them as, uh, as givers themselves, then we should enjoy them. He's given them to us. To enjoy them, not to endure them, to avoid them. God has given us this life as a gift. So Christian, go and enjoy it. And yet, yet the tension of this passage still screams at us. This can't be it. This can't be the full answer. This isn't a satisfying conclusion. Verse 9, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life. 
that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. This can't be it. I'll, I'll just live my little life here and now, eating, drinking, enjoying, doing, quietly and contently. Thank you very much, God. Although that is a good, God's good, clear, biblical call on our lives, the teacher isn't wrong. The aching meaninglessness and futility of it all still screams at us, and no noise-cancelling earphones can drown it out. Verses 11 and 12 present us with yet another problem. Evil times are always just around the corner, and they will certainly come, often when we least expect them. So our third point, but know that evil times will catch you in the end. Know that evil times will catch you in the end. Verses 11 to 12. And in some senses, verse 11 is quite easy. We know it in our heads that the fastest doesn't always win the race. The strongest don't always win the war. The smartest do not always get the fullest plate. The most impressive do not always earn the most. The cleverest do not always win tenure. We know it in principle. We know that time and chance happen to all, verse 11. We find it so hard to accept when it comes to us. That I wouldn't get the job, though I was the best qualified. That I wouldn't get the bonus, though I'd worked so hard. That I wouldn't just generally do well in life and get good things because I'm a decent person, because I follow God. It doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't match the life that I've planned out in my head for myself. And yet so often, this is just how our lives pan out. So often, life confounds our expectations, what we feel we deserve. That's how life goes. Under the sun, the teacher laments. Evil times will come. They'll catch us in the end, whoever we are, however we live. Like the trout, swimming happily along, reaching out its mouth for the worm it sees, coming down towards it. Like the pheasant wandering through the woods, suddenly finding itself catapulted into the air. We're trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon us. Verse 12. We never feel ready for the bad stuff to come. We're never, okay God, I've got life sorted. You can hit me with some hard stuff now. There's never a good time for evil to come. And you won't need me to give examples of the tearful phone call out of the blue in the middle of the family celebration or the return of symptoms just when they seem to be getting better or the news that the company's gone bust that you're being made redundant that your landlords need you out that your rental mortgage is nearly doubling evil times will catch us in the end our teacher tells us and so we finish somewhere pretty close to despair the vitality of verses 7 to 10 seems to have been dashed, and we're back to meaninglessness, with vanity, with life as a breath. But let's flip forward now, a few hundred pages. Let's see how Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, answers the deep existential cries of this teacher in Ecclesiastes. Firstly, as Christians, we are to look death in the face, but no that Christ has conquered it. As Christians, we are to look death in the face, but know 
that Christ has conquered it. We can look death in the face as believers, knowing that it is awful, it is wicked, it is ugly, it is not meant to be, it does not belong, it is a terrible thief, it is our greatest enemy, but it will not win, for it has been beaten. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Christ has defeated death on the cross. He has put death to death once and for all. It will not forever rear its ugly head. And yes, it's still in its death throes now. We still have to go through it, even as believers, unless Christ returns first. And it will still be awful, wicked, ugly. But we will come out on the other side. Christ has defeated it already. And that can transform how we see it. We will still, of course, face it soberly. We don't need to be terrified of it, to avoid it at all costs, to quake in our boots before it. We can look it in the face and we can do so in confidence. I think one of the best witnesses to the Christian faith is older brothers and sisters dying well, facing death with fear and trembling, who doesn't? with something deeper than that, a confidence, a hope, an excitement that they're going home to the Lord. They'll be with him soon. Let that that be how I die, O Lord, if I'm granted a long life. We see example after example in the scriptures of believers facing death, not carelessly, not in a foolhardy way, but with confidence, knowing that Christ has won. Think of the Israelites fleeing for their lives through the streets of Cairo in the middle of the Passover night or marching around the walls of of Jericho armed with trumpets, not swords, around this mighty fortress. Think of David in a slingshot standing before Goliath and Esther walking into the king's presence unsummoned of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego facing the flames. Think of Jesus. Silent, before his oppressors, knowing that he could have called down a legion of angels to save him, but not doing so. Christ has defeated death on the cross, and so we can look death in the face, not not carelessly, not as if it won't hurt at all, for it is terrible, but knowing that it will not ultimately win, Christ will. Secondly, We can choose to live a simple life with the lot that God has given us, but knowing that he's given us resurrection life. We can choose to live a a simple life with the lot that God has given us, but know that he has given us resurrection life. Your lot may be all you have now, these people, this place, this work, this life, and it may feel humble. It may look humble. It may be very humble. But know that you are also already made alive with Christ. 
Paul writes in Ephesians 2, and seated with him in the heavenly realms, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For as well as God coming down and joining us here in the meaninglessness and walking as one of us, the glory of the gospel is that he has also lifted us up to where he is. We have already spiritually been made alive though we await our physical resurrection. We are already, in a very real and true sense, enjoying the resurrection life that we will enjoy for the rest of eternity. Eternity has already begun, if you're a believer today. And so, there is more than this little lot. There is more than this life under the sun. And yet, this little lot is good. And God has designed it to point towards a much bigger lot we will one day enjoy. Every good meal here on earth, every fine drink, is just a tiny foretaste, a shadow of the glorious banquet he has prepared for us in heaven. The banquet that fills the pages of scripture, from the Passover meal to the Jewish festivals, to Isaiah's great prophecies, to Jesus' parables about the wedding banquet, right through to the marriage supper of the Lamb and the Bride in Revelation. It will be a banquet whose glory, splendor, and joy will far outweigh any pleasure anything on this earth can give us. And yet, every good meal here on the earth is designed to be just a little taster, to whet our appetites for what's to come. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, do it all for the glory of God. Enjoy that fresh mango here and now as God's gift to you. Eat it for his glory. Let it whet your appetite for his banquet. And of course, the same applies to every other pleasure, every other thing of this life God gives us. But the best possible date with the best possible spouse is a tiny and a wonderful pointer to the intimacy and the ecstasy we will enjoy with Christ as our husband. The cleanest, most dazzling white earthly clothes give just a glimpse of how we will shine in our clothes washed clean by the Lamb's blood. Our earthly perfume and aftershave contains just an oh-so-subtle hint of the aroma of God's oil which will fragrance us for all of eternity. So enjoy it. Choose to live a simple life with the lot that God has given you in the here and now, but do so knowing you have resurrection life, that Christ has lifted us up as well as coming down to walk with us and that he has so much in store for us now and in the future. And finally, know that evil times will come, the teacher said. And for us as Christians, know that evil times will come, but that God will bring evil to an end. Our lives and our lots now will be punctured by evil. We don't know what lies ahead of us, the hurt, the pain. But there is one thing we do know, and that is that Christ has defeated all evil, every power and authority on the cross. I saw a new heaven and earth, John writes in Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among them, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There will be no evil awaiting us on the other side of death in the new creation. No tears that will find their in, that will find their way in. No grief that won't quite have passed away. No sin lurking in a corner, looking to pounce, nothing to fear, like for me in that silly story at the beginning. Christ has defeated all evil on the cross. Satan's game will be up. The woman's offspring will crush the serpent once and for all. Time and chance, they don't stand a chance. For Christ has defeated all evil on the cross. We know it now. We will see it later in full. And it will be wonderful. We will never fear again. There will be nothing to fear. No evil will get to us. No harm will hurt us. We will be safe with Christ forever. Let's pause now for a minute or so and we'll read us in a breath. Father, though everything in our sinful hearts and in our culture tells us to avoid it, help us to be willing to face death. And though everything in our sinful hearts and in our culture tells us to, to strive for more, help us to accept the lots and the lives that you've given us. And though everything in our sinful hearts and our culture tells us that things will always get better, that we can conquer everything, help us to know that evil will come. But Father, help us to see how the glorious good news of Jesus Christ answers every one of these problems, every one of our heart's cries. Help us to look to the one who has defeated death, the one who has given us resurrection life, far above, far beyond, life under this sun, and the one who will bring evil to an end. And help us to rejoice that we will be safe with him for all of eternity. Amen.